0: Good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema, and it is brought to you by Dark Matter TV. Okay, Godzilla vs. Kong has dropped, and it's not only across the world, it's now officially in the United States, and you can go see it in the theaters or watch it on HBO Max Streaming. I chose to go back to the theater, and that's what this podcast was originally about and is going to be about, except uh, I got a few surprises when I returned to the theater. So before I get into that, I wanted to talk briefly about the whole monster movie thing. Look, I am a lifelong monster movie fan and a huge Godzilla fan. In fact, if you talk to anybody who grew up with me and knows me well, they will tell you, Harrison is Godzilla. I mean, I've, I've talked Godzilla, lived Godzilla, watched Godzilla, bought Godzilla my entire life. I've always enjoyed the franchise, and I'm not a blind fan. I'm well aware that the franchise is extremely uneven with some great entries and some not so great entries. And for the record, in case you haven't listened to my podcast before, I do not count 1998's uh, Matthew Broderick abortion as a Godzilla film. So that one is taken out of the picture. And I'm also very understanding of the human story. It's always a balance. And look, whenever you start bringing in the human story with giant monsters walking around, let's, let's get this out of the way first. We are talking about movies where gigantic, apocalyptic-sized dinosaurs, monsters are trashing huge cities. I'm not looking uh, for Daniel Day-Lewis to show up and give an Oscar-winning performance in a monster movie. However, it can be done as we saw with Aliens, for example, where Sigourney Weaver uh, got an Oscar nomination for her work. And by no means am I comparing the old Godzilla movies with, with the high production value special effects extravaganzas of, of today and today's present MonsterVerse. What I'm trying to say is, is we go into these even as kids. Godzilla was great as kids. You know, that's when we enjoyed them the most. And that's why we love them now because there's a lot of nostalgia to them. So when I went to see Godzilla vs. Kong, I'm going to see it really as that 10-year-old boy that's still alive inside of me. I'm not looking for, again, Oscar-worthy performances or heavily written human drama. So I want to make that very, very clear. But the original King Kong versus Godzilla was a lot of fun. But let's admit it. It wasn't really the best movie ever. I mean, the effects are pretty cheesy. Kong looks like it's a ratty, uh, cheap knockoff costume. I mean, it's terrible to a point where at one scene uh, toward the end, you can see the actor's human skin right underneath the face mask of Kong where they didn't color it with black grease paint. But it did sport one of the best Godzilla suits in the entire series and one of the most iconic. So you got to give it that. And it was fun. Pairing up uh, these two uh, franchise properties is really what it was and putting them together. It was professional wrestling with men in rubber suits. I get it. I decided to go back and look at the MonsterVerse and where we are right now. So Godzilla 2014 has its ups and downs. The big thing about Godzilla 2014 is that they restored Godzilla to truly the king of the monsters. He is regal. He is noble. He is a scary ruler, but he is a fair ruler. That was what was really cool about the original. The the monsters, the mutos in the original film, in the 2014 film, left a lot to be desired. They were kind of badass, and uh, the kiss of death thing at the end was quite good and all of that. But we had to sit through a lot of stuff and really a lot of human story that really we didn't care about. I, I could have cared less about Kick-Ass and I felt ripped off that Brian Cranston was taken out of the movie in under, I think it was like 12 minutes. So I felt that was a rip off, especially if they marketed it, that it looked like Cranston was gonna be in the whole movie. Any of you who saw the movie, you know what I'm talking about. However, fantastic special effects and really some tight direction. I still feel the film could have been cut by a good 10, 15 minutes. But you also have a new kind of hero, human hero, in the form of Dr. Sarazawa. That was important. So we have this bond with Sarazawa and Godzilla. That was carried over into King of the Monsters. And I think one of the biggest mistakes in King of the Monsters was killing off Dr. Sarazawa. And King of the Monsters, I thought, had the most heart of all the Godzilla movies to date. And the reason why is that Godzilla was there to protect the planet. Not just protect the human race, that's a byproduct. He is there to keep shit straight. And Ghidorah is his problem. Ghidorah is his haunting entity that constantly is after Godzilla, an age-old rivalry, probably one that predates and is even more important than the rivalry between Godzilla and Kong. So, Godzilla, King of the Monsters had its issues. You can listen to my uh, episode four on that with Godzilla versus Cinema. Uh, the number one problem I felt was that the film was way too dark, and I've heard a lot of people, they, they say the same thing. Uh, too much happens at night. The human story is kind of secondary. Where I feel that the human story worked best was Kong, Skull Island. You had some really well-drawn characters I wasn't heavy-handed. You had a little bit of comedy in there. And most of all, you liked these people overall. And Kong had a great human enemy in Samuel L. Jackson. And I felt so far in the MonsterVerse, this is where the human story worked best. And then we get to Godzilla versus Kong, where, quite frankly, the humans are just there for window dressing. And I'll get into that. Again, cinema is not about film reviews. I'm not going into any kind of detailed film review on Godzilla versus Kong. But I'm here to address a couple things. One was the return to the theater. And then something else that I feel is starting to catch on and is becoming a pattern. So bear with me as we go through this. Look, the last movie I saw in theaters was The Rise of Skywalker. And that was just before the pandemic really started to hit. And it was a couple months before things locked down. So I returned, and, and oddly enough, into the same exact local theater, uh, to see Godzilla versus Kong that I did rise of Skywalker. So it was truly stepping into the past for me, but my plan for this episode for episode 89 didn't work. I had planned to go in and interview some people in the lobby, ask them their expectations about Godzilla versus Kong, and then see them on the way out. And the amount of cynical attitude that I got from people going in, I had my recorder ready. I went up to some people, and first of all, they look at you like you're nuts. Everybody's got masks on. They're staring at you. You don't even get to see their face fully. You just see these very suspecting, suspicious eyes. And uh, obviously, I mean, and fair enough, the question was, what is this for? And I said, well, I run a podcast. And I found that I'm starting to explain myself. And then by the time I'm done, people are going, no, that's okay. I don't want that. Even though I'm not identifying anyone, uh, they're not on video of, of any kind. And I even did have paper releases for anybody who wanted to sign them. No one was into being asked questions. That's really as simple as it was. They looked at me as if I was dodgy and where is this all going and why? So that kind of set the tone. So we get into the theater. It is not packed. They have to socially distance the the seating. Uh, I would say in a 250 seat theater, there might've been 30 people in this theater. Now, all the shows on the front doors, they had signs that said all the shows for Godzilla versus Kong were totally sold out. But that's kind of a a misleading thing because really, if this were under normal circumstances, I'll bet they would not have been. But because that really you're reducing seating down to a percentage of what the house holds, you, you see where I'm going with this. So you sit down in the theater, you're looking around and one of the, the exciting things about the theatrical experience and, and enjoying a movie is sitting with a packed audience because you're all going to share in this experience together. And now you're just with a handful and, and I get it. I mean, you're still in the theater, but it's not the same. And I've talked about this on previous podcasts where going to the theater, seeing such films as Superman 2, uh, Return of the Jedi, all these films where people stood up and cheered and applauded and screamed and yelled, Jaws, all of these things. It's not there this time. And then came on this very maudlin kind of SOS for movie theaters. And it's under the Save Our Cinemas campaign. Hashtag Save Our Cinemas. And it's also, it can be found at www.saveourcinemas.com. And look, I'm not knocking it. Uh, What they said was absolutely right. They're looking at the effects of the pandemic and the plight of theater owners, especially private theater owners. Even the big chains have suffered as we've seen with AMC and Regal. However, uh, this focused on the independent chains that are out there trying to make a go of it. And it's quite sad and it's, it's quite depressing. And I know it's reality, but it definitely killed the mood of Godzilla versus Kong. That's for sure. I can say this. At the end of the movie of Godzilla vs. Kong, and I won't give any spoilers here, when the final thing happens where it's very clear there is a clear-cut victory, no one cheered. There was no applause. It was just a quiet theater. And that is disheartening. In Godzilla, King of the Monsters, at the end, when Godzilla destroyed King Ghidorah, everybody cheered. Everybody applauded. I mean, it was great at the end. I shouldn't say everybody. That's a generalization, but there was so much applause and so much cheering. And that also went in the 2014 when Godzilla gave the kiss of death to the MUTO and ripped its head off then afterwards and held it up in triumph. People applauded and cheered. There was none of that this time around. So I went into Godzilla vs. Kong with high expectation and high excitement for audience participation and to bring something really cool to my cinema podcast. And I sat down knowing I'm not going to be able to bring any of this to my cinema podcast. And then that Save Our Cinemas campaign came on and it just showed how much had changed in just under a year. Let's talk the Snyder Cut real quick. It's going to have something to do with Godzilla versus Kong. And I want to go into this fan cut, studio cut, director cut, whatever cut you want to talk about. And I'm going to say that these alternate cuts go as far back maybe as Exorcist 2 or even Heaven's Gate. Now, Exorcist 2 had a variety of cuts uh, because number one, it was just such a god-awful movie and Warner Brothers, again, Warner Brothers, they thought they had a winner. People don't realize that. When they viewed The Exorcist 2 in their private studio screenings, they thought they had something better than the original Exorcist. I don't know why. I have seen The Exorcist 2 a number of times. I still don't get it. I I, I mean, I'm not stupid, but I watch it. I just go, what the fuck is all of this? All I know is there is a shitload of locusts, but they thought they had something. Then they debut it. Audiences literally rioted in some theaters. In Philadelphia, William Peter Blatty said he was in the theater when some people ripped the seats out of their theater floors and threw them through the screen. That's how bad the movie was received. Warner Brothers jumps in, pulls the theatrical cut out of release for like I think a week. They recut it did some things, cut it down, recut it, hoping that this cut would be better, put it back out. It was no better. And then I think there was a third cut for home video. So it depends. When you go to rent uh, The Exorcist 2, you got to look at that running time. I think there are three versions of it. None of them are a director's cut. These are studio and panic cuts is what they are. But go take a look. And then you had Heaven's Gate which is really a studio killer. Uh, Released at almost, I believe, four hours running length, Heaven's Gate bankrupted United Artists and uh, came out to be one of the biggest flops and destroyed Michael Simino's career. The guy who did The Deer Hunter and basically had a blank check in Hollywood was destroyed by the reception of Heaven's Gate. Uh, There's a famous story where they had an intermission in the film and Michael Simino was out in the lobby and I believe it was Pauline Keel. It was a film reviewer, I believe, was standing there and he's looking around seeing people looking very dour and almost like held prisoner and nobody's drinking champagne. And he wondered aloud, why isn't anybody drinking champagne and looking like they're having a good time? Something along that line. And I believe it was Pauline Keel who replied, because they hate the movie, Michael. Now, Heaven's Gate has gone on to have subsequent cuts. Is there a definitive director's cut? I don't know. But lately now with a new cut of Heaven's Gate, it's being rehabbed now as an American classic. So again, you have these VHS cuts and home video cuts, then DVD cuts and director cuts and studio cuts. I was just talking this morning uh, to someone on Twitter who was watching Alien 3. And I said, you do realize there are two cuts. There is the theatrical cut and then the home video cut, which is not a director cut. You see where I'm going with this? This is becoming very convoluted. It's becoming a mess. David Fincher originally set out with a vision for Alien 3. Uh, The studio, 20th Century Fox and Morgan Creek had different ideas. The same thing happened with Exorcist 3. There is a studio cut or a theatrical cut, I should say. And then there is a home video cut. One of the few times I will say I prefer the theatrical cut over the home video cut to Exorcist 3, I think mostly because of its its uneven quality and what they tried to do to piece it back together since a lot of that footage, you know, disappeared over the years. Nobody saved the negatives and such. And then we were also talking about Superman. Another Twitter friend uh, was saying that she had just watched Superman for the very first time, 1978's Christopher Reeve's Superman the Movie. And I, she said, I'm moving on to part two, Superman 2. And I said, before you do that, be very careful. Try to watch the Richard Donner cut before you watch the theatrical Superman 2 cut. And she replied back, why is that? And I explained, the Donner cut is not just taking a few scenes and changing order or changing an ending and changing seven, eight minutes of, of content. The Richard Donner cut of Superman 2 is an entirely different movie than the one that was released under Richard Lester. The Richard Lester one is the dumbed down, stupid version and everything that Richard Donner had problems with producers, the Salkinds over when he was shooting Superman 1 and 2 back to back. Richard Donner was the original director and fired because he felt that the producers Uh, We're trying to take Superman into a dumb, almost Batman TV level with really bad slapstick humor. And he was 1000% correct. When we see what happened with Superman 3 and even Superman 4, but Superman 3, which was completely Richard Lester's baby and was allowed to direct, we got a real mess of a movie. Bad comedy, miscasting with Richard Pryor in this, a bad villain that was a wannabe Lex Luthor. It was a mess. Okay. But Richard Donner's uh, cut of Superman 2 was restored around, I think, 2010, somewhere there, maybe a little earlier, a little later. Doesn't matter. And although he didn't have a lot of money to go back and really, you know, spruce up those effects with some good CGI and stuff, the Richard Donner cut to Superman 2 is far superior than the Richard Lester theatrical cut because it's an entirely different motion picture. And I will even argue, watching the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2 makes Superman Returns even better. It dovetails perfectly into Superman Returns. So there is something to these cuts. And studios often do not know best. For those of you who are teachers out there, you know that the best way to teach is just to be left the fuck alone and that administration leaves you alone. Principals and administrators often are lousy teachers that got great paying administrative jobs. There's an old saying, the worst teachers make the best administrators. It's like bringing the government in to run a movie in the creative process. Administrators know the bottom line. Administrators know that they have to get testing done and scores and all of that stuff. They're not in the trenches anymore. And they probably were not in the trenches very long in the first place, if sometimes even at all. And so teachers understand the minute that administration starts poking its nose into the content of the classroom, things change and it becomes formula. This is what happens when studio executives get involved. We're not talking about the earlier days when you got producers like Richard Zanuck and David Brown who came in and understood creativity, production value, and the bottom line and allowed Steven Spielberg to creatively control Jaws and believed in their jockey on that horse instead of allowing Sid Sheinberg and the Studio Brass to return Jaws back to California and finish it out in a gigantic tank. And that, of course, is how we got Jaws the revenge. So there is a good and bad of demanding cuts. And that's the problem that I have here. I'm going to tie this into Godzilla vs. Kong. There is nothing wrong with fans wanting to see a different cut. Look, I would love to see a full cut of Robert Altman's Popeye. From what I understand, there is at least another hour out there of this movie. Although the movie was not really well received, it was not a financial flop, apparently Altman's vision was cut down by both Paramount and Disney to fit a two hour or under running time and this is where you have a problem and I understand you can't always be making heaven's gates and four hour five hour long films there is a limit to audiences patience and most of all for theaters to keep running these movies over to make money you got to have revolving show times you know four hour movie that's a pretty big chunk of your day you're only gonna get one or two maybe three screenings out of this thing. I understand that there is a four-hour version of Caddyshack out there. I don't know if that's really a good thing. Like people are already saying, oh, we want to see the R-rated or NC-17 version of Mrs. Doubtfire. I I guess, but why? It's not like Mrs. Doubtfire was anything spectacular or, you know, deep in thought. It was a comedy. It was a Robin Williams comedy. Do we really need the NC-17 version? But I guess if people want to see it, that's fine. The problem is not in the desire. The problem is in the demand. The illusion or the delusion of demand where fans believe that they are owed. I'm going to make this very clear to everybody listening as a filmmaker and also someone who goes to see movies. And that is you have no ownership over any property. I don't care how big of a fan you are. I don't care how much fucking money you have spent and that you've decorated your home or man cave or den, whatever. I don't care. I don't care how far you've driven to see a movie or what you have done over the years to be loyal to a movie. You do not own the property. You have completed your transaction completely by going to see the movie. That's it. Agreement fulfilled. You want to buy the merchandise? That's up to you. You want to do this? That's up to you. It's up to you. But you do not demand of a studio any kind of cut. Now, again, without fans, we wouldn't have had Star Trek, the motion picture, and then Star Trek, most importantly, Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. I get all of this. I understand the importance of fans. I appreciate all of my fans. But if somebody demanded a director's cut or a re-cut version of any of my films, my answer would be is that's really sweet of you. Uh, If you want to pony up the money, I'll look into it. But otherwise, you got what you got and that's it. The Snyder cut did seem to rectify a wrong. There were a lot of personal things that went on there. Uh, Snyder lost his daughter, a lot of mess. And Joss Whedon now, of course, there's even more hatred for Joss Whedon because of his treatment of people and especially female employees on set. We get all of that. But the problem is, again, the delusion of demand. So how does this relate to Godzilla vs. Kong. I'm going to make it very clear for all of you listening. There is another cut of Godzilla vs. Kong. I don't know if it's intact and it exists and it's sitting on a hard drive, but I do not believe Adam Wingard when he says this theatrical version is the definitive version. I think this is the Warner Brothers version. There is a lot going on in this film and it seems cut quickly. And I went with some people that sat around me And I went with people directly, friends that I went to see this film with, and they all said the same thing. Boy, this movie feels rushed. It was like, we can't have too much character buildup. We can't have too much plot uh, exposition or anything like that or plot development. We can't do any of that because we got to get these two monsters fighting. And it's weird because there have even been early reviews from months ago with test screenings that it takes a long time for Godzilla and Kong to finally meet up. And that is not what I saw in the theater. I think they are fighting in the first 18 to 20 minutes when there was one review. I wish I could find it now, but I remember a very early review from a test screening, which said it took almost an hour for Godzilla and Kong to finally square off. So something happened here. A number of the reviews I've read also have noticed huge logic gaps and plot holes in the movie. All citing the idea that this film underwent heavy editing and felt rushed. And it really does. When you watch this movie, it's beautiful to look at. The production value is all there. The effects are stellar. There is no doubt about any of that. And I don't qualify this movie as cinema. I will make that very clear as well too. Godzilla vs. Kong is not cinema. C Y N E M A. Now there is a lot of circumstantial evidence to support what I'm saying. Warner Brothers is not known for handling their DC universe so well, so why would their handling of the MonsterVerse be any different or much different? I mean, there are small things in this movie at first that you look at, and that is number one, uh, they just uh, Millie Bobby Brown and, and her little coterie of, of rebels, they just walk into this gigantic apex facility like this top secret, you know, buried 33 levels into the earth, you know, harboring one of the biggest technological secrets of all time. And they just fucking walk in on top of it. When they're being chased, Millie, Bobby Brown just runs up to a door and beep, 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 beep. She knows the door code. I heard some people exclaim around me. How the hell did she know that? And why is Kyle Chandler even in this movie? I mean, Monarch, which was established from the very first film, which, remember, we didn't see Godzilla for a while in the 2014 film, and he's only in the film like 10 minutes. And I know, well, you wanted more monsters. Well, King of the Monsters definitely gave you that. You got more monsters, and more didn't exactly equate to better. However, Monarch in this film is reduced to nothing. It is sidelined by this Apex company and a convoluted script that clearly tries to fashion this franchise into the superhero DC Marvel model. I mean, what exactly does Monarch do in this movie except sit around and watch monster destruction on screens, and then the people that are in it are able to fly inexplicably fast all around the world just to view it. No one in Monarch is there to stick up for Godzilla to have his back, to say, wait a minute, we got to look at this. Godzilla has been quiet for five years. Everything has been good on the planet. Nature has been restored to balance. Things have been going good. Why is this big son of a bitch suddenly fucking shit up? No one's really, I mean, you have the token thing, you know, uh, Millie Bobby Brown, who of course has to be addicted to a conspiracy minded podcast because we've got all this conspiracy bullshit now going on in the world. In addition to that, we have Dr. Sarazawa's son. You would think Sarazawa perishing by giving his life to Godzilla and King of the Monsters, that there would be some kind of really good introduction to his son. And instead, you find it out through piecing some evidence together later on. And only then I heard some people go, oh, that's that guy's son. I suspect a lot of this was edited down, which tells me. There is a lot more to this film and it's being held. Look, the film suffers also from a very big need to mix everything into a check the boxes format. It's, it's really scary. They're, they're trying to hit all the right algorithms here. I mean, look, make sure your cast is properly diversified and there's nothing wrong with any of this. I'm just saying there's something wrong when it's so apparent that that's what they're doing, that they're making a cookie cutter movie to appeal to the widest base possible because this movie is so damned expensive. It's got to make its money back. And releasing it during this pandemic, well, that kind of says a lot too. Make sure you have your woman in power box checked. Okay. And again, I'm not misogynistic, I'm not chauvinistic. I'm just saying it's very apparent that they're doing this. Make sure that you cast a weak, ineffectual male boy to take the back seat to tough Millie Bobby Brown. Make sure you have that checked off. Also as well, the setting and everything. It looks like Millie Bobby Brown is just instead of 11. She's now 17. I mean, it's stranger things with Godzilla and Millie Bobby Brown's connection with Godzilla is never expanded upon in this motion picture. And then throw in all your convoluted plots to check off the boxes. And that's, this is what I'm talking about. You know, we have a plot that involves a Game of Thrones flavor and DC and Marvel and don't forget some Star Wars and throw in some Lord of the Rings as well. And then all we needed was really a Harry Potter kid with some supernatural wizard powers. And this is an algorithmic <laughs> wet dream is really what it is. Look, watching this movie, the audience was pretty sedate. For a lot of the things that I said beforehand, the tone was not really set well, but was it because the film didn't inspire? There was so much heart in King of the Monsters, Kong Skull Island, and the original 2014 film, but there were no cheers in this film. In fact, really at the end, dead silence, and most people did not even wait for a post-credit sequence, which I will spoil for you. There is none. How do you get ripped off on that? Look, you've got terrible dialogue in this script that's punishing its actors. Specifically, I'm going to probably butcher her name, but I'm going to say it's uh, Isa, Isa Gonzalez. And she was created as this two-dimensional corporate daughter of, of the apex billionaire villain. And it's laugh out loud bad. Watch her opening when she shows up on the aircraft carrier. They set her up as this villain then they give her absolutely nothing to do except for this snidely whiplash dialogue. She might as well have just had a long mustache and twirled it and been like, meh. I mean, she's a beautiful actress, and I'm sure she's a great actress. She was just given really terrible words to say. Why is she even in this movie? Or was there more of her? And they just cut her down. Look, the best actor and the best character in this whole film is Kaylee Hoddle as Gia. This little girl was brilliant. Her face spoke so much. She doesn't say a word and she speaks the best dialogue out of the whole movie. And just so you know, this is a Kong movie. Godzilla just shows up to be a dick, a brute, a bully. After several movies of showing Godzilla as a firm but fair king, in this one he's just an asshole. He just shows up to beat the shit out of Kong because there can't be two apex predators. And yet at the same time, Kong was on Skull Island for a long time, even back when Godzilla first resurfaced in the 40s. And Godzilla never went to Skull Island to take care of him. And they make this big deal about creating a Kong containment center, which shields Godzilla from sensing Kong, even though Skull Island, I'm going to give you a spoiler here. It's a small one. Skull Island has pretty much been decimated by some perpetual hurricane storm. I guess the one that surrounded the island in the, in the first film in Kong Skull Island. However, none of this makes any sense. So they have Kong in this gigantic uh, Matrix uh, Truman Show kind of bubble Uh, to keep him from being sensed by Godzilla. But yet, before they built that, he was on the island. Why didn't Godzilla go there? I mean, even at the end of Godzilla, King of the Monsters, they say all the Titans are going to Skull Island. No mention of this. Was it there? Was it just cut out? So what's the plan here? What was really going on at the studio level? I'm going to be pointing fingers, I think, at Warner Brothers on this one. Who's really running the MonsterVerse show? Is the plan to just get something out, make sure it checks all the boxes and the woke mentality and the political correctness? If it does, great. Terrific. But then release a fan cut later, which actually might be superior. I'm willing to give Godzilla vs. Kong a second chance if I could see what I'm believing is probably at least another 30 minutes of footage that never made it to the theatrical cut. And like I said... Don't believe me that cuts can be different. Look at Donner's cut of Superman versus the Richard Lester cut. Or from what I'm reading now, Kingdom of Heaven, which was released as a 95-minute film and has now been restored to Ridley Scott's original vision of three hours, I hear it's an entirely different motion picture. Even studio killer Heaven's Gate, like I said, is rehab now into an American classic. Look, the Snyder Cut released the Snyder Cut It changed things. Four hours, and it's, from what I hear, it's far better than the original Joss Whedon mess. However, even Joss Whedon's movie made a billion dollars. And if not for the pandemic, how much would the Snyder Cut have already made? I, I don't know. We talk about remaking good movies all the time. Why don't they remake the bad ones, not the good ones? Go back into franchises and fix the shitty ones. So why not, here's the bottom line. Why not just get things right in the first place? And I believe it comes from an executive administrative mentality. Look, Disney recently talked of how their Marvel films and now even how Star Wars, these movies are made years in advance. They, I mean, not physically where they're shooting them, but they're planned out to the entire detail. They're looking ahead to political issues. They're looking at all of that, what the climate will be when the film is finally ready to be released. Folks, This is assembly line fast food filmmaking. It is not art. It's not even commercial art. It's product. And that is cinema. But it's trying to disguise itself as something more. Godzilla vs. Kong is beautiful. It is extremely well made. And it is made to entertain us. So I'm not classifying Godzilla vs. Kong as cinema. But it is also totally forgettable. Aside from the big climactic battle, which is extremely well done, I doubt it will be as revered as even its cheesy cheapo 1963 original. Fans can demand their cuts, but maybe we as a culture should be demanding better from the start and also demanding better of ourselves to understand it's not all about formula and checking off the boxes. I am not asking for deeper human stories and monster movies. I'm asking for well-written fun to match and balance out the incredible power of the special effects and productions that can often mask shoddy writing and direction and, most of all, mediocrity. It's inexcusable to present substandard scripts to high-tech effects and production value and pass off McDonald's as fine dining. Once we lose the ability to critically think and differentiate that concept, we are truly lost. This is Harrison Smith. Thank you for listening and wishing you all a great weekend. Thank you.